must constantly look at things in a different way. The Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast was created by two physical therapists out of the desire to learn more about the different educational roles in physical therapy and healthcare and how healthcare education works by talking with educational leaders and people with different perspectives within physical therapy and across interdisciplinary lines on how education can be improved to disrupt the status quo of healthcare education. This is our journey and thanks for listening. Are you a third-year physical therapy student that excels on tests when you have study guides, checklists, and deadlines? With all of the information available about how to prepare for the NPTE, it's easy to get disorganized and not feel prepared going into the big day. NPTE Prep Success is an online course that provides PT students easy-to-use study guides and step-by-step guidance through the NPTE preparation. To learn more, visit kylericeprep.com. Thank you again all for your continued support, and now for the show. All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. This is, of course, your host, Brandon Poen. And today, I'm joined actually by a very special guest to talk a little bit more among one of the topics of clinical education, and that is going to be regarding student and clinical instructor assessment, as I'm very happy to be joined by Dr. Sean Gallivan, who is board certified in neurologic physical therapy, as, as well as having certification in NDT. Um, but he's also the director of clinical education at the University of Dayton in Dayton, Ohio. So Sean, thanks so much for joining me today to share your insight of this topic, because honestly, it was really great to hear your platform presentation this past, this, uh, past ELC, because I really didn't know about the work um, right. that you were doing and kind of your interest in this topic. And now, thank you for all that work. And also, thank you so much for coming on today to share this insight. It's much appreciated. Yeah, yeah absolutely, Brandon. It's, it's, a, it's neat to be able to talk about uh, something that I have a little passion for. Um, it's a small slice of, of the greater world, but um, I really appreciate your interest. And, and I think it's um, a neat opportunity to, to just be helpful to the national discussion on, on the topic, which is really um, interest has been rising within the PT profession on that, as you well know. Absolutely. And before, you know, we get into these topics of, you know, student and clinical instructor assessment, and then kind of tying that into some of these big discussions that are happening. uh, Sean, would you mind touching base a little bit more first and foremost onto, you know, how you actually got into academia and kind of how it led you um, to where you are in studying this topic of, you know, regarding, you know, student and clinical instructor assessment, clinical education, and kind of how you even got to be the DCE at the University sure, of Dayton. Sure, yeah, yeah, happy to. So, so it's kind of funny that uh, timing-wise that this is occurring right now because just last week I was um, in a discussion with other faculty at the University of Dayton from across the university about vocation and, and you know, how do, how do you look at what you're doing now and is it what you should be doing for years to come or, or do things change and how do you respond to that? So, so ironically, you know, I started in the clinic uh, I spent about 16 years full-time in the clinic. I was treating uh, patients with brain injuries and uh, strokes, mostly, uh, on an inpatient rehab unit. So so very, very rewarding. I mean, I just love doing that. Uh, I think every PT will tell you, uh, whether they're an academician, a researcher, or still in the clinic, um, that, that the clinical portion of PT is our first and, and true love in being a therapist. So, so And that remains the case. Um, but while I was in the clinic, I had the opportunity to do some adjuncting at the University of Dayton. So I taught one or two classes in their pre-physical therapy program. And, and my wife 
said one day, uh, and this is probably like 98, 2000 or so, do you ever see yourself doing that full time? And I just kind of laughed, oh no, this is just a hobby, you know, it's fun. And, and lo and behold, about 10 or 12 years later, you know, that came to fruition that I did jump into academia. But along the way, um, it, was, it was just some of the roles I had as a clinician. So I was a clinical instructor uh, for a good 10 years. And then also I spent 10 years as a um, site coordinator of clinical education. So, so we, I worked at a large trauma hospital. We had about 100 OTPT speech therapists, and I um, was in charge of, of both the student education as well as um, our staff development, professional education amongst the staff. And that, that created some opportunities. Uh, one interesting along the lines of assessment, um, we were wondering why we were getting all these students who were not doing well on their clinicals. And we were struggling and finding out, you know, after midterm, oh, there's issues here. And not having enough time to correct those issues because by the time we found those out, we, we would you know, be almost time for the student to leave. So, so we had a group develop a weekly feedback form and we saw earlier interventions starting to happen because discussions were happening. So, so that kind of sets the seeds for some of what I'll share later um, as far as student and clinical instructor assessment goes. But also during that time, as a, a site coordinator, you often get invitations from schools to help them with their accreditation process. Hey, Kathy's coming for their on-site review. Can you come to our school and just tell your experience of what our, our school's PT students are like, our relations with you, the, the clinical community? And um, so I did a number of those. And one, I was at uh, Ohio University, and the uh, director of the program was a CAPTI, um or commissioner, they call them. She says, Sean, I think you'd be really good at actually doing site visits. And I was like, really? <laughs> and so, so I became a member of a site visit team uh, for CAPTI. And then the other, another thing that happened was my, my clinical supervisor said, Sean, I really think you need to go to this um, leadership um, thing that the health professions or leadership um, section of the, uh, I think Health Policy Administration section of the APTA puts on each year. And, and so I'm like, okay, I guess I should go then. And, and I went and, you know, I met someone there who then invited me to be on a committee that was a, a national clinical assessment tool for um, academic coordinators of clinical education, which we now call our directors of clinical education. So lo and behold, without any planning on my part, this resume was building that said, uh, you really have the skill sets you need to be in academia. And uh, lo and behold, a position opens up at University of Dayton right in my backyard, which is my undergrad alma mater also. And um, I, I applied and, and here I am. Well, I love it. And Sean, we'll certainly get in this later, but given your so many different experiences and different roles um, and so many different aspects of clinical education, it'll be interesting to kind of hear your thoughts on clinical education on a whole from all the different perspectives yeah. that you've been through and how that's changed. Because I'm sure that's a that could probably be a whole separate podcast of itself. Yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah. You know, it's, it's been a real blessing. Um, and I've had many people supporting me along the way that have given me really neat insights or pointed me in, in directions that, um, yeah, as you look back 10 years from when that little nudge was like, wow, that, that was really important. And it gives you new insights as to how and why you do things today. 
Well, absolutely. And before, and let's start off a little bit starting through this assessment discussion and first looking at the student. Um, so, of course, the big one that, of course, students, academics, and CIs alike are very well familiar with um, is the CPI, or the Clinical Performance Instrument, as this is, you know, a standardized method of assessment that we commonly use in physical therapy, clinical education. Now, right. um, I'm just kind of curious, what do you and kind of what you've heard from other CI students or DCEs view are the strengths and limitations of the CPI as it currently stands? Sure, sure. So, um, you know, so that the CPI is probably the most commonly used um, in the nation and probably has been for a number of years. Um, and you know, one of the strengths is just that it's the most common tool. You know, it's used by many schools. Um, it's been validated, shown to be reliable and valid. So, so, you know, you can use it trusting that it actually is measuring what it says it's going to measure. And, and likewise, you can use it to, um, you know, if you want to see if an intervention, an academic intervention improves how well your students perform in the clinic, you have a standardized measurement tool to allow you to do that now. So, so the, I think those are a couple of its strengths. Um, you know, it, its content is derived from our profession's documents. Um, so the normative model of physical therapist education, uh, our CAPTI criteria, accreditation criteria, uh, our core values, another document that's APTA put together, uh, guide to physical therapy practice, and vision 2020. So all those went into developing this tool. Um, and the other thing that helps, again, with having standardization is, is there's a standardized um, training mechanism. That's a, a two-hour two CEU course that everyone who uses the CPI must take before they actually are given access to um, evaluate a student or a student evaluate themselves. So I'd offer those as probably the, the bigger strengths. Um, when I think about weaknesses, you know, um, Right now, um, there's some technical issues going on. Um, so I think the DCEs probably feel a bigger, I'll put it this way, a bigger percentage of DCEs will tell you, I don't really like it right now. It's, it, there's a lot of technical issues going on that, that concern me. Um, the student experience, I don't think, is all that different. Because you know, if you're a student and you have a is technical issue, well, your DC takes care of it. <laughs> so content-wise, though, um, both students and uh, clinical instructors will say it's just long. You know, it, it takes two to four hours if you're really going to um, put a good effort into it, an honest effort into evaluating yourself or your um, students. Um, there are 18 items, and, uh, you know, we'll hear that a, a number of the items overlap one another um, and that it's just too lengthy. Um, and then when you look at the validation study um, that looked at the reliability and validity, the reliability uh, and internal consistency is a really high number. It's 0.99. You can't really get much better than that out of, out of a 1.0 being perfectly reliable. Well, statistically, when you get above 0.9, it says there's cause for concern that the reliability may just be due to the fact that there are so many items and that those items overlap. You're measuring the same thing over and over again. Or there, or there may be um, you know, um, completion fatigue by the user, which, which is adding to that um, 
reliability score because you sometimes when we fill something out when we get down so far everything just starts becoming a four or five rather than maybe a more thorough introspection of those later items. Well, I think that's a really good point because, I mean, you've touched on this topic of the CPI and kind of the pros and cons, and that's certainly been something that's been brought up in the past on this podcast. And you had mentioned just in that answer beforehand about um, currently how a lot of students in DCEs are going to have a little bit more um, specific technical issues with the CPI at this time. Um, but knowing that, you know, at the 2019 ELC or the Education Leadership Conference at the Clinical Education um, SIG meeting, they actually had a few representatives from the CPI web right, um, that right. were there and they announced a few upcoming changes that they would be doing um, to the CPI to hopefully uh, decrease or lessen some of those headaches that were currently yeah. happening. Yeah. Uh, Sean, for those who perhaps weren't there, would you mind sharing a little bit of kind of what they had said they were going to do in terms of from a technical aspect to kind of help uh, make the CPI even better than it was? Yeah, you know, so just a few restrictions on how you completed the tool are no longer there. So, so there's no longer an individual section sign-off, and, and that got some real nice cheers from the crowds. Um, also, um, you weren't allowed to, for the clinical instructors weren't allowed, allowed to sign off for review um, before completing the final sign-off, and they're allowed to do that now. So, so I think those were two things. Um, if you were to check a significant concern that you know, was remediated and is no longer a concern, you weren't able to uncheck that box. So, so, so I think those are some of very simple fixes that um, were very well received. And then um, the training module, um, about two years ago, they, or a year and a half ago, they switched um, that from being on the APTA Learning Center and, and then connected to your access to being able to complete the CPI um, to, to disconnecting those two events. And, and that caused a lot of confusion um, process-wise and, and how training was getting done. And, and there was no longer a mechanism to ensure that training occurred or that training went, went well enough um, because new users were just given automatic access essentially. Um, so, so that's been corrected. Um, and, and so that helps again with a standardized training for a standardized product that should help help keep a um, valid tool valid. So now that being said, if you go back and look at the um, introduction uh, to the CPI and it talks about the reliability and validity um, that that tool went through, it makes it really clear. This is only a, a reliable and valid tool if it's used exactly as it was developed and not altered in any way. And so the caution is, you know, we're starting to alter it. Um, now, the list that I just gave, did that really alter substantially how people use it? Um, yeah, probably not, but, but there comes a point at which that gets real debatable. Maybe it did, maybe it didn't. And, and so, um, so I think there comes a time where we say, instead of, um, continuing to tweak the tool, maybe we need to look at the tool again um, and, and, and develop a new tool or, or relook at the tool, redevelop the current tool because it comes from professional documents that were in existence over 13 years ago. 
Um, and so certainly we are no longer living by vision 2020, which is only uh, about a month away now. <laughs> um, so our vision has changed, has grown, developed, and we want our tools to reflect that without losing the enduring principles that a good tool would have also. Well, you know, Sean, I'm going to modify the next question here a little yeah, bit because sure. uh, I was going to ask you a little bit about um, in terms of technical changes, what else do you think would be helpful? So I'm still going to ask that, but I'm also going to ask you, um, you know, you kind of mentioning, mentioning just there that instead of maybe um, tweaking the same tool with all these different ways, maybe we just need to find or formulate a new tool or use something differently. Of course, like you had said, you know, because of the changing times and all those things. So if, if you could, would you mind expanding on that a little bit in terms of kind of how you think um, it should be restructured in terms of a new tool specifically? Like what would you like to see in it that perhaps um, we don't have apart from, of course, you had mentioned the documents in our reference, and I know that's probably one part of sure, it, but sure. what else would you say in that regard? You know, I, I, think, I think first of all that um, people are wanting a simpler tool. Can this be done? in a simpler format? Can it be done with fewer um, points of evaluation uh, or constructs that we're evaluating? Um, so, so I think that would be one piece uh, to explore. I don't have a, a should, we should go this direction or that direction, but I think it's important to look at all the different tools that are out there. Um, and, and I know we'll discuss those in a few moments, but they, they all are pretty much measuring the same thing. You know, there's not a whole lot new under the sun as far as taking care of a patient. It's, it's almost like anatomy discoveries. Okay, so if I'm an anatomy professor, you know, for 20 years, I've been teaching the same thing. Well, okay, there, we haven't discovered any new parts in the body. <laughs> um, but with patient care, um, you know, I think there's, to some extent, that's true. Good patient care is good patient care. But our understanding of what it takes to treat patients well, I think, changes. Um, so, so while there may be, let's say, 10 underlying constructs that are going to be the same from tool to tool to tool, maybe there's um, a handful of others that won't. So, so for example, right now, we've got um, you know, clinical prediction tools um, that we didn't have 15 years ago. So to what extent should those be considered? Um, you know, risk-taking. Um, you know, how much risk um, should I take in my judgments? Um, is that something we should be measuring? And it, it is on uh, one of the tools that's out there. Um, so again, I, I think we, it, it's more of a, just a need to reflect upon what's different now versus 10 years ago as far as prevailing treatment. You know, whether it's a treatment type, you know, so a type would be dry needling. You know, that, that really didn't happen about 10 years ago. So is that a skill that every therapist should have and be assessed upon? Um, another would be patient-centered care. You know, we computers have brought about um, across healthcare a phenomena where instead of my eye-to-eye -eye contact with the patient the whole session, I'm bouncing back between a computer and the patient. And and you know, if patients, um, you know, and rightly so, often think, "Wow, they're really not paying attention to me." Um, so, so now we have a whole new wave of education that's saying how you need to attend to this whole person, both while you're, while you're in the moment, but also trying to better understand what that patient's whole life is like in order for you to best take care of whatever their injury or ailment is. 
So again, do you develop assessment tool that speaks to that? Or do you just stick to, you know what, these are the 10 enduring principles and let's keep it simple. Well, I think it's really interesting. I mean, I know there's been a lot of discussion, not just from this, but of course, looking at um, one avenue of this being EPAs or entrustable professional activities right. with yeah. medicine. And I know that yeah. there's a lot of work that's currently being now that kind of looking at that a little bit further and kind of come up with a solid recommendation on that. Um, right. So I know there's a lot to that. But Sean, you had mentioned, of course, you know, some of these other tools or kind of referenced them a little bit. And frankly, yeah. um, until you told me about this, I really wasn't aware of all these right. um, yeah. vast different tools that were out there. So would you mind sharing a little bit more about what are some of the other student performance tools that are commonly used? And maybe how are they similar and how are they different from one another? Yeah, you know, I, I'd be happy to. And, and I'll first admit that while I was aware of some of these, I wasn't aware of all of them. And uh, I've learned a lot just in the last uh, week or two um, as I've looked at, at them in a little more detail. So, um, you know, probably the, the oldest one beyond the CPI is, is the, what was used to be known as the Blue Max, but is now called the PT Max. And uh, it was developed by the Texas Consortium of Physical Therapy Schools. And that one has um, about 48 items that um, are more of a checkoff as opposed to a, um, here are five constructs and we want you to say if I'm at entry level on these five constructs, knowing that under these five constructs, there's certain behaviors and skills. So they are actually taking the approach of let's, let's look at the behaviors and skills which really aligns well with competency-based education and, and the entrustables that, that you mentioned. Um, so a student from clinicals one through four will have their PT Max, and they will go ahead and use that same tool each clinical. It's not a new tool, a fresh start each clinical. It's on those 48 items, you know, you're measured on essentially what's a one to four scale. Um, and, and are you at what would be an entry level or not? And if you are, great, that's checked off and you've only got you know, four more in that category before you're competent in that category. Um, and on your third clinical, your CI would see that you've already achieved entry level in all these different skills. Um, but maybe there's three skills in the communication area you need to work on. Maybe there's two skills in assessment so it gives the clinical instructor maybe a little more detail about your history and how you can, how they can tailor their education to meet your needs, which, which again, I think is what you'll hear when people are offering um, competency-based education as the way to go. So, so that's the, the PT Max. Um, another tool that's um, gotten a fair amount of use more recently is, is the one developed by the University of Pittsburgh, the Clinical Internship Evaluation Tool. Although that doesn't align anymore with um, the language we've adopted in the field. Internship is, is not uh, in, in, the, in the proper language column anymore. I don't know if they'll change the name of the tool though. So, um, but used on clinicals was developed again from documents of the profession, but also goals of the um, University of Pittsburgh's PT program. And what their um, take was, you know, we don't want just an entry-level uh, clinician. We want someone that can hit the ground running. We want someone that's more competent. So, so their scale is, is, is developed in a way that speaks to competence beyond just making it to entry-level. 
Um, you know, that said, they have very similar categories to, to the other tools that are out there. Um, they have eight constructs or categories that they use, and they have 42 different items under those categories. Um, the, uh, so both of those tools are available electronically through Exat, which is a clinical ed database provider. Uh, there's another database provider that's developed their own um, tool, and that's Acataware, uh, and they developed the performance assessment system. Um, they, theirs is probably the simplest. It's probably what I would say um, probably most attractive to clinicians because while there's only 10 items, I don't have to assess 15 skills under each item. I just say, okay, communication. Um, and they'll, they'll give a one to two sentence description of what is meant by communication that on the CPI might be seven or eight different behaviors, that on the Blue Max might be you know, seven or eight different skills that need to be checked off. But from the, um, uh, the Academware approach would be, let's just make this very simple. And you as a professional what know what communication is, assess your student on communication. Um, and, and so that I think is, is probably the quickest to complete. Um, most tools, in addition to um, assessing um, using entry level as a marker, um, you know, will we'll say how much assistance a student needs or how, much, how independent they are as, with cases. What percentage of cases are you independent with? And that might say how close you are to entry level. So, you know, if you're advanced intermediate on the CPI, that means you, you're, you can handle 75% of the caseload independently. So um, the PAS, so a category's PAS, flips that around and, and just says how much assistance. And so the less assistance you need, you know, um, the higher you are on that scale toward entry level. So, so that's, that's the PAS. And then there's um, the tool that's used up in Canada, um, assessment of clinical practice, and that has 20 items uh, with a, an, a similar to the CPI, they just list, here's a number of behaviors. We're not asking you to check off each of those behaviors, but underneath there, there's 85 behaviors. Um, I think, I don't know if I mentioned, but for the CPI, that's 150 different behaviors. If you just added up all the bullets under each of the 18 categories. So for the, um, uh, Canadian tool, um, there's 20 items and 85 sub-items, so to speak. But you're just you're you're measuring those 20 items or, or rating those 20 items. Very similar categories. They actually use a very similar um, rating scale uh, and got permission to do so from the uh, APTA with the CPI scale. Um, and then the a tool that's used in Australia, New Zealand, and um, Israel, uh, the um, assessment of physiotherapy practice is what it's called. Uh, they have a rating scale, interestingly, that's similar to the um, the PT Max, where it's just a four-point scale. And for both of those scales, one and two on those scales are um, well, two is entry level essentially, and then they have three and four levels three and four, and they don't necessarily call them by those numbers, but levels three and four are above entry level. Uh, so it's interesting, it's, it's much more of a checkoff, so that the, the Australian one is much more of a checkoff in the sense of a competency checkoff. You either got the skill or you don't. And once you do, great, move on. But they 
use the categories um, more similarly to the CPI and the Canadian tool. Um, so those are, those are the six that I, I think are, are helpful just to have that background. Um, and, and I think I've hit probably some of the commonalities, but um, you know, please offer any questions you have on those tools. And there's probably a few other things I could highlight as far as similarities and differences. Well, I think you touched a lot, a good base on that avenue, Sean. But one thing I would just be kind of really curious to know is um, if you were able to find any research on any of those tools in terms of, you know, reliability and validity at actually assessing uh, student or instructor performance. Like, are we, do we know anything more about yeah. is one better than the other or are there certain circumstances? Like, I would just be really curious to know what we know from that standpoint. Yeah, sure. So, so I, I believe the only tool that doesn't have published um, reliability and validity is the Academy tool. Um, you know, that's the newest tool out there. I know the um, Intermountain Consortium uh, of PT schools, they are conducting um, a reliability and validity study right now. So I'm not sure how quickly we'll see those results. Um, so yeah, so from that standpoint, um, you know, the, the, the remainder of the tools would be viewed as established and um, you could use them for student assessment and, and any, again, any reliable and valid tool you can then use also as an outcome measure for assessing whether interventions to improve your student's education um, are helpful. You know, are your students performing better because you are using um, approach A in the classroom instead of approach B? Or, or because you're using integrated, you know, part-time integrated clinical experience prior to their first full-time, you know, does that actually change their performance? And, and you can use any one of these tools to say, um, to, to make that judgment because they're known to be valid and reliable with the exception of, of we don't have the results on the um, PAS yet. Well, given that, you know, given the vast majority of them are, you know, have been established as valid and reliable, you know, we can't admit one of the big things or one of the big players when it comes to physical therapy education is CAPTI. So yeah. how does yeah. CAPTI guidance like impact the selection of using a specific tool or of a performance assessment tool? Like what's their role in this whole kind of the grand scheme of things? Yeah, you know, I think everyone would be absolutely surprised. And, and they, they would like you as an institution to describe what tool you use um, and how you use it to assess student performance. You know, how does it inform student performance? How does it inform whether or not you as a, an institution are meeting your program goals that you've set for yourself? Um, nowhere in the um, criteria does it say it must be a valid and reliable tool. You know, it's, it's I think, assumed or presumed that it ought to be. Um, but, but again, it's, it's more of how are you using that tool? Is it showing you what you think it's showing you? And, and, and again, you have, you have the burden of proving that as an institution to CAPTI. And, and it appears that people have been very successful in doing that. Uh, you know, institutions have. People, um, my experience on CAPTI is, is that people are, schools are not um, being prevented from renewing their accreditation. Um, because of problems with assessing student performance in the clinic. Well, I think it's just really interesting when you kind of give that perspective on that. And I'd love to kind of switch gears, Sean, and touch base a bit more on, 
you know, clinical instructor assessment formally, as this was actually what your presentation was on when I right. kind of had a uh, moderated for you at ELC, and I think it was called uh, Reliability and Validity um, of the APTA Physical Therapist Student Evaluation, right. Clinical right. Experience and Clinical Instruction. So let's start with that and kind of with an overview of what we know uh, from the evidence has been done to this time when it comes to kind of looking at CI performance in PT education. Yeah, yeah. So, so interestingly, I'll start just by, um, you know, referencing your last question on, on what's Kathy say about this. They say the same thing they do about student ass performance assessment. You know, they want to know how you're assessing your, um, your clinical instructors. And interestingly, if you go back 15 years, um, you know, the, the tool was developed for first, first used in 2005 or 2006, right around there. So, but if you go back 15 years, schools were saying, we need to be able to show CAPTI that we're assessing our clinical instructors um, and, and making improvements, but we don't have a common tool by which to do that. And so historically, that's how the um, PTSE developed. And there were, there were other consortia, um, I think the New England consortia had a tool, um, partially upon which the PTSE was based. So, um, and then the Florida Consortium had a tool also. So, so people were using tools, but again, we didn't have anything established as, as reliable and valid. Um, so for my dissertation, I was um, interested in actually doing a, um, an intervention. I, I wanted to say, does, if, if we trained clinical instructors, um, in the months leading up to a clinical with you know, targeted content, would they um, be better clinical instructors? And, and my, the chair of my uh, committee, uh, Dr. Barbara DeLuca, she's in education. She's not in the physical therapy world at all. And, and she just said, well, what tool are you gonna use? And I said, well, the PTSE. Okay, well, show me the reliability and validity on it. And I looked and I was like, um, I don't think there is any. <laughs> I said, I don't, it's, it's not in the literature. She's like, well, you certainly can't do an intervention study if you don't have a reliable and valid tool. So our discussions led us to, why don't you, Sean Gallivan, um, run reliability and, and validity um, assessment of the tool? Now, there was one group, um, uh, Morin uh, et al., who looked at the PTSE from a reliability standpoint. Um, however, it was just on one school's students from one clinical, I believe. So, so even if they had established it as a reliable tool, um, we certainly could not generalize that and say it's reliable for everyone in the profession or other schools to, to be using. So, so lo and behold, that, that's what I did. Um, at this point, would you like me to talk more about that process or? Yeah, great, great. I'll, I'll just roll with that then. So um, I was able to connect with um, EXAT, so Clinical Education Database Provider, uh, because I found out that they actually had um, schools using the PTSE electronically. You know, the APTA has a paper version and that's what we used and other schools use. You know, maybe people have put it onto a, an electronic format for their own school, and, but, but there wasn't any one collective place where data was gathering. Um, but the um, EXAT had um, the potential for up to like 15,000 
um, completions of the PTSE amongst the schools that had used that part of its product. Uh, so, so that's what I did. I, I, I collaborated with Exat and we were able to have 29 schools authorize um, the de-identification of their data and um, for Exat to release that to me. And of those 29 schools, we had over 6,000 completed PTSEs uh, on which we ran reliability and validity assessments. So, so it was neat just to have that um, size of a, of, of a sample to use. And, and I think that um, at least lends to the, um, you know, let's take a good look at the methodology and the results um, that I found, you know, let, let others critique that because that's a pretty high number. So if it's, if it's really, if his methodology is good and, um, and he's made reasonable conclusions, then we should really be looking at this as a profession. And I'm, certainly I'll leave the rest of the profession to, to offer that critique. Um, uh, so the next step was running um, factor analysis. So that was the approach we used to try to assess the construct validity. You know, is, is it measuring what it's supposed to measure? And um, with construct validity and factor analysis, we're just trying to understand the way people use it. So the scores they give on the 21 items of the PTSE, which is assessing clinical instructor performance, do students fill it out in a way that tells us that maybe there's three or four underlying constructs within the overarching theme of clinical instructor performance. So maybe it's feedback, maybe it's communication, maybe it's the ability of the clinical instructor to um, provide teaching interventions. Um, so when we ran the factor analysis, or I ran the factor analysis, it, it did not demonstrate um, that there was a factor solution. And by that I mean um, it identified one factor of 17 items out of the 21 as, as being all being really one theme. Um, and, and then it did not identify any other factors that met the standardized criteria when you do factor analysis that says it's, it's got enough meat in it to say this is another factor. So we were left without a factor solution for this 21 item um, assessment tool. Which, which, which says, then says the conclusion would be it, is, it does not demonstrate construct validity. For the reliability assessment, um, we, I used internal consistency assessment, and the numbers were really high. You know, I referenced that a little earlier um, with the CPI reliability um, being 0.99. Well, the, the, I, I had three different, uh, within the 6,000, PTSE sample, I had three different groups. And each of those groups had values above 0 0.9, uh, 0 0.96, 0 0.94, et, et cetera. And so statistically, that's again raising the question, is the reliable, reliability due to, it's, it's actually a reliable tool, or is it due to the fact that students um, aren't being honest? Uh, is it due to, and, and filling out a very, rating their clinical instructors highly. So there's a ceiling effect. Everyone's getting fours and fives no matter what. So, so naturally, all the items appear to be measuring the same thing because they're all getting measured at a level of a five. Um, another possibility is that the clinical instructors really are performing at that level. You know, could be, maybe not. Um, and then I think the other piece with the 
internal consistency being so high is just that it says being that high indicates it may be due to having too many items or too much overlap between the items. So again, it left us with a tool that is not um, valid and, and that questions the reliability. So, so we're kind of, as a profession, without a reliable and valid tool that measures student assessment of clinical instructor performance. Well, Sean, I really appreciate you taking the time to really highlight that avenue, kind of your methods, your limitations, but also your results of that work, because I think it's very, very important. Access to healthcare is one of the largest issues facing both providers and patients, as millions of people worldwide lack timely and affordable access to healthcare. Anywhere Healthcare, a telehealth platform, is a simple, low-cost option for providers and patients that eliminates the barriers to access to all kinds of healthcare. To find out more, check out anywhere.healthcare, which is available on our show notes. And if you use the code HET in all caps when you email to sign up, you'll save 25% off the total cost. Thank you for attending class today, and we hope that you learned something and gained value from the content. If you'd like to schedule office hours with us, feel free to add us on Twitter at HET Podcast, on Instagram, HET Podcast, on Facebook, the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast, and the homepage, Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast.com. And for those of you following along in the syllabus, extra credit can be obtained by liking us, sharing us, and leaving a review. Let's continue our journey up Mount Educational Success as lifelong learners.